and welcome to Free Willin' with Cardin Podcast. I'm your host, Cardin Wyckoff, wheelchair warrior and disability advocate based in Atlanta, Georgia. On this podcast, we share stories of people with various disabilities and help to break down barriers for the disability community so that we can build allyship and a more inclusive world. If you like what you hear on the episode today, please rate, review, and follow this podcast and share it with a friend. I'm giving a shout out to my friends at iAccess Life. It is a mobile app that rates and reviews places on the built environment to break down barriers in transparency on the bathrooms, the interior, the parking, anytime that you go into a new place. You can find the mobile app on Google Play and Apple App Store. Use the referral code CARDEN, my name, C-A-R-D-E-N, when signing up. Today is part two of interviewing artists from Kinetic Light Performing Arts Group. And joining me is Michael Mag, who designs the intersection of lighting and projections for theater, dance, musicals, operas, and planetariums across the United States. So kind of going behind the scenes, and he sculpts with light and shadow to create lighting environments that tell a story, believing that lighting and support of the performance is the key to unlocking our audience's emotions. He has built custom optics for projections in theaters, museums, planetariums, and also designs and builds electronics and lighting for costumes and scenery. As a paraplegic, Michael is passionate about bringing the perspective of the disabled artist to technical theater. He is currently the resident lighting director at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. His designs and creations have been seen on the festival stage for the last 20 years, as well as at Arena Stage, Brooklyn Academy of Music, Seattle Repertory Theater, Utah Shakespearean Festival, Florida Studio Theater, and many others. You can find Michael on Instagram at Kinetic Light Dance and his personal Instagram, Long Red, and on Twitter, Long Red. And here we go with the second part. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Free Wheeling with Cardin Podcast. I'm excited to have you on here. Hi, Cardin. It's great to be here. And you are my second person that I have uh, for Kinetic Light. And as I understand, you are the lighting and projections designer for Kinetic Light. And you also are paraplegic. So I'm really interested in hearing your story. So we could, we could start out with your work at Kinetic Light, and then we can talk about your disability and your spinal cord injury and how that's impacted you. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Yeah. All right. So talk to me and walk me through how you got started in lighting and projections. I know you uh, were really passionate about it in um, high school. Yeah. At a play, right? Yeah. I started early and this is pre-injury. So this is before I joined our community and I was, uh, I moved from an all boys Jesuit high school. We moved across country and I ended up in a public school. And I wanted to figure out how to make friends. And someone suggested, hey, go join the theater. And I did. And I just immediately fell in love. The moment that I put my hands on the controls, and in those days, it was big handles that controlled you know, a whole bunch <laughs> of lights at one time. you know, And there was mm-hmm. only six handles. And it was like one was for red lights, one was for blue lights kind of thing. But I, I understood... In, in empathy and in my head that what I was doing, rather than controlling the levels of light on stage, 
I was controlling the emotions of the audience. Mm. And I knew that light had this subconscious power to get into our minds. And obviously that's from a you know very specific perspective, but I was just really enthralled by that. So I immediately just jumped into the field and studied that in college. And then have as soon as I got out of school, I started working and I, I haven't stopped since. It just keeps happening. That's awesome. So when when you were injured and have the the bicycle injury where the car hit you and you ended up having a spinal cord injury, where did that mindset shift come from for now thinking about disabilities and how you can incorporate your passions into now this whole new world of yours? Right, right. I mean, as as those of us that acquire a disability understand it's a gigantic mind shift, right? And, you know, it, it must be different for the people that are born with disabilities. But for us that acquire them, it's a, it's an adjustment period. And it's a, the world works differently than we expected it to. And I have to admit that I was very ignorant about the world of spinal cord injury and disability in general, I think, as most able-bodied folk are. They just don't think about it. And so I as part of the as part of the process of recovery and getting back into it and trying to figure out how to adjust my life i became aware not only of my mobility issues the fact that i had to get around in a wheelchair now i couldn't climb a ladder to get up to the catwalks i couldn't roll around up in the grid radically changing the, my physical interaction with the theater i had to learn how to be a better communicator to the crew who were serving as my hands and feet in that situation. Luckily, I mean, it's amazing to me that, you know, this happened after I'd already established my career and that I also had an employer that understood that what they wanted from me was what was in my head, not necessarily what I could do with my hands and feet. And so that really is, is a blessing, you know, that they were able to go on that journey with me. And I don't think many employers actually out there in the world can, can think that way which is really a shame, but uh, maybe we're getting there. So anyway, it, it just kind of it made me aware, you know, I spent some time at Craig Hospital in Colorado, which is a big spinal cord injury recovery place, and I became aware of different levels of spinal cord injury and how it affects us differently. And, you know, that I'm very lucky that I have a T7 level injury, right? And so that's not certainly as bad as a cervical level injury, right? And so it, it really shifts, of course, as, as you move up and down the spine. Uh, and then I started becoming aware of other disabilities. I had a friend in junior high school that was blind, and we spent a lot of time just playing games together. And so, you know, we had made adjustments on how to play chess together, uh, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and how to make it fair when we're playing chess together. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> so I became, you know, became aware of like, okay, right, there's, an adjustment for the blind folk. How as a lighting designer do I communicate to folks with sight impairment? And yeah. that led to communications with Laurel and Alice about how we take the poetry that I'm putting into the lighting and communicate it to folks audibly, right? And so that that was a, a fascinating conversation. I learned about people that have different neurodiversity issues and mm-hmm. One woman that I talked to experienced severe migraines with flaring, light flaring around any image. And so I actually utilized that 
in one of our dance pieces to create a character that had that same kind of light flaring projections of that. So I'm hoping to reach out and communicate to as many people as I can with the art. I light from a wheelchair person's perspective. I'm always down here at this level, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want everything to come from our perspective and trying to make things both beautiful and ugly, as is necessary in the piece to tell the story, but from my eye level as a wheelchair user, and then finding other ways to communicate it to other folks. And I have to admit that as a designer, I'm still learning. There are so many ways that people need to gather the information, different ways that they, their senses bring it into them, the way that they process it, and it's a continual study, and it's really changed what I thought was important about my art. What is more important about my art now is supporting and conveying the story in every way. I'm a trained lighting designer and projection designer. That's where I start, but I'm also reaching out into the other areas to do it as well. Oh, wow. We have a lot to unfold there. It's, it's so cool. <laughs> I love how you you were able to get feedback from other people with disabilities, with neurodiversity, and also from your friend who is blind, and to take that feedback and then incorporate it into the lighting to create, and then whether it's an audible description and have that, I know they have that app, Audimance. Audimance. Yeah, Audimance, yeah. Audimance. And what that does is it provides audio descriptions for those who are visually impaired or who are blind or have low vision. And can you walk me through kind of how that lighting is described in poetry language? We usually, uh, the the cool thing about that app is, is that as a user, you get to choose from different channels of description Mm -hmm. and as many of those channels as you want. So there is kind of a, a channel of sort of straight up, description of the dance and it's just talking about the moves that the dancers are making and almost in technical terms that are using references to dance terminology and the and the environment but there's no real reference to the visual environment that i'm creating with lights and projections there's another channel that is just talking about the visuals and so i work with the audio describer there to talk about my intention in the Mm -hmm. lighting how I'm forwarding the arc, what the emotions are that I'm conveying with the lighting. We use a lot of tricks in lighting to help convey emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's things that happen in our subconscious for most people about how we use the same colors to represent something. Mm-hmm. I can use red to represent jealousy instead of yellow-green, right? But if I do it three times, your subconscious mm-hmm. will understand that. And so once I start establishing that, so then I can talk with the audio describer to kind of come up with a poetic description of what the lighting is going on. And and luckily, we have some amazing audio describers that are Mm -hmm. able to do that. And then, of course, we have other channels that are just a poetic reaction to the piece that might be drawing from the visuals, drawing from the dance, putting it all together. And then we have a channel that is adjust the sounds of the dance, the wheels on the ramp, the bodies hitting the ramp, that kind of thing. So we're 
bringing all of that together to create something. And then, you know, there are, you know, many people that are sight impaired are fantastic at multi-channel audio. And, you know, the goal with Automance is, is that we can deliver that all spatially separated mm-hmm. in a way that makes sense. And you can listen to as many channels as you want, which I think is, which is great. It's very confusing for those of us with sight because we're not used to multi-channel audio in that sense. So mm-hmm. it, it can be off-putting if you're not used to it. I've gotten to the place where I really love it. Cool. <laughs> you know, it's like listening to four books at the same time, but they're oh, all wow. about the same subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's also can be very overwhelming if you're not fully in tune with your all the different senses, right? Because those descriptions are really the descriptions are there to create that emotion and that feeling and that sensation for those who. Majority, not to say that everyone, anyone can't use it, but just for the majority of those who are not sighted. Right. The color theory thing is really fascinating. I took a whole branding course earlier this year on different colors and more like paint, but lighting also, a lot of it is is similar. So like your reds can can be passion and love and anger and blood. Um, But, and then you have like yellow and oranges, which are usually more energetic and exciting, but also can mean a warning. And then if you have your blues, which can show trust and water. And uh, so it's really amazing how much your subconscious picks up on and associates different colors with different feelings and different meanings. Right. Um, And that's cultural too, right? Okay. Red and Mm -hmm. white mean something completely different in China than they do here, right? So um, we have to be really uh, aware of where we're performing pieces and how that goes. Unfortunately, because of COVID, our piece Descent was supposed to go to Hong Kong, but got canceled. And I was really excited to see... Uh, to learn because we weren't going to change the colors because the piece was put together with with a, a you know North American audience in mind. Sure. And I was really curious to talk to people and to hear what they got from it emotionally mm-hmm. based on the color that we were presenting. Um, I, I, I was looking forward to that learning experience, and I hope we have the opportunity to get back to that. Yeah, color is amazing, and you know that one thing that we learned about color and the subconscious. Is, is that even though we have these overriding cultural associations with color, mm-hmm. there is that ability of the training. So if there's an angry moment on stage and I sidelighted in red, and then there's another angry moment on stage and I sidelighted in red, if I want you to feel that feeling of anger, I can now sidelight the scene in red before you see the moment to give oh, wow. you prescience that the anger is coming. And it's always after the third time Ooh. for some reason. It's just the way our brains work. So it's uh, really, uh, it's a helpful trick to use in helping your audience get prepared for a moment emotionally. So you are essentially, pre- you're uh, foreshadowing what we are going to feel. Just yeah. by, that's crazy to think about. How. Yeah. Yeah. Like and, it, and the great thing is, is that sound. if you're... I'm sorry. <laughs> go oh, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, if you're watching a piece of theater or dance, you're mm-hmm. consciously not aware that I'm doing that to you. <laughs> no, right? not at all. <laughs> right? You know, it's not the, that's not what you're thinking about. You're watching those amazing dancers on stage. And then mm-hmm. you're like, 
oh, why am I feeling angry? What is this tension <laughs> in me? Right. And then they clash. Right. And it's like, oh, right. You know, and mm-hmm. so you're in the emotional space. So Alice, the choreographer, Laurel and Jerron dancing as well as Alice, we talk a lot about the arcs of the story. What are the emotions? What are we trying to convey? How are we getting the audience through our storyline in the same emotional state that we intend? We approach that from a lighting and projections point of view, a sound point of view, and of course, a choreographic point of view to get all of those things to work together. Oh, cool. That's really good. It's, get, it's really cool to get to have some background behind the scenes kind of stuff. Yeah. Because when you go to a play or when you go and see a movie, you're not really thinking about all the technical work that is done that really puts it to life. Because right. if you were to remove the lights or if you were to remove the sound, if you've ever watched a, a movie or a video with no sound, it's kind of just, you don't feel that emotion because lighting and sound really do so much to carry it forward. Right. You know, and not to say, I mean, you know, we in theaters often do like just pure black box. It's like black curtains around, black cubes, actors not in costume. Actors are amazing. They convey a huge amount of emotion. Sure. But the support of the correctly designed costume, scenery, lighting, sound, projections, all of that adds up to creating a more impactful story, whether you're trying to make people laugh or cry or be angry or be happy, whatever you're trying to do with your story, all of those things add together. You know, you're talking about behind the scenes, like for every actor on stage, there's probably 12 or more people backstage, right? (laughs) There's the stage manager, the assistant stage manager, the lighting person, projection, sound, sound, Audio one, which is the person that puts the mics on and off the people, right? You know, stage hands that are flying things and moving scenery. And, you know, so it adds up wardrobe, cost, you know, there's, right. it just adds up very quickly. And that's not to mention that there was a shop that built the set and a shop mm-hmm. that built all the costumes. So when you start adding all that up, you know, there's, you know, dozens of people behind every actor that you see on stage. And to that point also, though, because there is so much that goes into production for art and, you know, especially live art, whether it's theater or dance and opera, a lot of times we're not really proactively thinking about how are we being inclusive for marginalized groups or people with disabilities. And what are you doing in your space to help break down those barriers? The, the the very first thing that we're doing specifically in kinetic light is, is that we're making a welcoming place and a specific intention of bringing disabled people into our company. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the first thing we look for. Are you disabled? We're not excluding the able-bodied, but if you're disabled, that's a that's a, that's the you know the first thing we look for on your resume, I guess is the way to put it. Um, <laughs> We want people that have the voices, the creative process that I was talking about mm-hmm. is is informed by the voices of people like us. And so they create something that we need to bring to the stage. So we look for disabled people. We're starting a fellowship program. I don't even mm-hmm. know if we're allowed to talk about that, but you know, we're looking <laughs> for people that we want to bring from the disabled community and give them an opportunity to work at the level that we're at. Mm. We're not the highest level of theater. We're not super commercial Broadway or whatever, but we're a great little dance company. And we're providing opportunities 
for people that have disabilities. I also am the resident lighting designer at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and we have a program called FAIR, which is Fellowships, Assistance, Interns, and Residences. Residencies. And in that program, it is specifically geared to bringing on people that are underserved and underrepresented in theater. Mm-hmm. Regional theater, which the Oregon Shakespeare Theater is, is, I don't know, 99.9% white, especially in the technical areas. Mm-hmm. And we've been trying to break that down for about 20 years. I work with a director named Tim Bond with the group theater in Seattle. And uh, he came down here and I followed him down and he created that program. And so I've been with it since the beginning. And we're looking for people of color, people with disabilities, people that are just underrepresented in our environment. So the first thing we did is like go through typical internship for lighting kind of thing. Must be able to lift 60 pounds. Right. Why? Right. (laughs) You know, somebody else can lift the 60 pounds if you're smart enough to do the lighting. Right. Mm. Must have a bachelor's degree. Why? Mm -hmm. If you're good at lighting, those are the things that are exclusionary Mm -hmm. rather than inclusive. There's no equity in those. So Mm -hmm. I've been seeking equity in that way to bring in folks and train them. USITT, which is the United States Institute of uh, Theater Technology, Mm -hmm. um, they have a gateway program, which is the same thing. There's a convention every year, except for COVID years. And mm-hmm. we bring people in. The gateway program usually has about 12 participants, which are mentors and mentees. And I've participated where I've been assigned with a person. My last guy, Luke, had a cerebral palsy in a wheelchair. And I was able to take him around introduce him to everybody in the field at this giant convention, 5,000 people Wow! And he wanted to be a sound engineer. And so I was able to take him up to the console manufacturers and say, hey guys, what do you have for Luke who has limited mobility in his hands? Mm -hmm. He's got a great ear. I've heard his mixes. He's fantastic. But your controls are all way out here, too far for him to reach. Mm. What's your portable option for him? And get them thinking and then get Luke in contact with them, right? So immediately they're like, oh, we have somebody to serve here. So that's been really good. And then the other thing that I do is that every three years, there's a conference called North American Theater Engineers, Architects, and Consultants. And it's a conference about theater architecture primarily, building theaters and why we build theaters. And I go there every year and I give a presentation about inclusiveness in design backstage, not just for the audience. Because mm-hmm. the architects are almost 100% by law required to think about getting people in wheelchairs, the crappiest seats in the house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Oh, man. <laughs> so, so first I break down the, why do we have to have the crappiest seats in the house? Can we get past that? And then I get into, well, how about backstage? How do we make a passageway that's wide enough for a person Mm -hmm. in a wheelchair to get along the fly rail so that they can fly things? How can we get Mm -hmm. an elevator? Because you've got an elevator to take scenery up to the grid. Can we make an elevator and appropriate wide passageways for a wheelchair user to be up in the grid? And then, of course, I immediately, somebody will raise their hand and they'll say, Michael, 
what would you do in the grid in a wheelchair? <laughs> and I'm like, everything that I would do on the ground if you design it so that I can safely do it. Right. You know, <laughs> you know I would work on the lighting and the rigging and I would oh, make man. it work. Right. You know, uh, and sometimes I have to get out behind, from behind my little table and mm-hmm. up on the stage and show them that I can pick up a pig iron and I can load it and say, you know, that's my level mm-hmm. of disability. There are people that are more and less. I'm mm-hmm. certainly not the strongest person, wheelchair user that exists by any means. There are people yeah. that could do, climb the ladder with their wheelchair. I can't do that. So think <laughs> about how you're going to serve the wide band of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you design it in in the first place, it's not, you know, the big point that I make, of course, is it not only serves the disabled community, mm-hmm. but it serves everyone else. At, at the Oregon okay. Shakespeare Festival, we put in an elevator to get me from the lighting shop, which was in the basement, up uh-huh. to the theater level. And that was a big expense for them. It cost wow. about $50,000. And it was you know, really amazing to put that in place. I am the person that uses that the absolute least. You know who <laughs> uses it the most? <laughs> it's, it's the wardrobe crew. They've got to carry tons of heavy Elizabethan (laughs) costumes up and down the stairs. We put in the elevator and they Mm. rebuilt their racks to fit in the elevator perfectly. (laughs) And now the costumes go up and down all day long. I have to wait in line to get to the elevator now. (laughs) There's costume racks moving. (laughs) Who's the priority here? (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) Um, Oh, wow. Everybody benefits when Mm -hmm. we design it right the first time. And it's less expensive, Mm -hmm. that elevator... Um, there was actually so a shaft. True. They intended to put in an elevator when they built the theater, but they didn't because they decided to spend the money on something else. Mm-hmm. And so it cost a lot more later to put it in. So, you know. Yeah. Raise your hand if you haven't used an elevator before. <laughs> right. No one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't exist. Right. So, yeah, there's just so many amazing points that you made just from universal access to ensuring equal access for all, not only benefits people with disabilities, but just everyone, even the costume designers and carrying them up and down the different levels and what you're doing with USTT and and bringing people into networking and and then talking with other partners and pointing out where they can be better, like with the soundboard, like, you know, where your accessible controls on that yeah. soundboard so that anyone can can use it. I know Xbox recently came out with a universally designed hand controller, which was really cool. That yeah. was in last year. So companies, I think, are starting to think more about it, mm-hmm. um, but definitely have a long way to go. So, And then also, I thought was really interesting what you said about how the technician, was it the lighting technician field, is primarily male dominated and caucasian or white is that is yeah. that what you said yeah it is it's uh it's really changed at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival since okay. i've been in charge of the lighting department the, the <laughs> department is now predominantly female and um, okay. the the lead positions are are all held by females and um, mm. we have been able to actually bring in people of color and hire them and retain them give them nice. positions where they feel welcome, served, you know, uh, but 
I, I feel like that's not universal. As mm-hmm. we tour shows and I go out to other theaters with either with the dance stuff or with OSF's touring stuff, I end up back in a place that is predominantly male and predominantly mm-hmm. white Caucasian. Yeah, something to continue to break down those barriers with. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of different things to to really challenge what historically has been considered the typical person to complete the job in the yes. technical field. And it's like, wait a second, who came up with those rules? You know, and, mm-hmm. and why can't we change that? And I would just challenge any business and organization to take a look at those roles that have been around for a very long time and look at the physical aspects to it. If it's like required to lift 60 pounds and, you know, scale up mountains and stuff. And to, right. It's like, who who created that? Like, why has that been that way? And, and what can we do to open up the doors for other people to apply to it who have a brain but may not have that physical ability? Right. Yeah. And also, like, reaching out to people on the neurodiversity spectrum. I was mm-hmm. able to reach out to a person with some autism, and they wanted to work in video and in projections. And I was able to kind of bring them on. They had specific needs as far as like they wanted to feel safe in just in the interview process and have Mm -hmm. a known person with them. That like blew HR away. They were like, what are you talking about? Bring another person to the interview? I'm like, but that's what this person needs. What is there a problem? You know, and they're like, but we've never done it like that. I'm like, and right. (laughs) So, So let's bring this person in. And then that person has a very specific like interest and focus and set of skills based around video editing, which really wasn't exactly what I was looking for or needed in this projection idea. But there was a whole task, set of tasks, as far as organizing my stuff, getting it in place. And this person was completely focused on that. He was Mm -hmm. able to just lock down and do what needed to be done without a whole lot of guidance either, right? Right. And so it was like, this is recognizing the skill set that is present in the person that you're looking for and not requiring them to be white or buff or male or straight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, none of that makes sense. It's about what needs to be done. Yeah, the accommodations thing is definitely a whole other topic of conversation, especially in like workforce development and basically having that advocate for those who necessarily aren't able to really communicate what they can do and that I think the problem with a lot of interviews is that it really requires a lot of attention and emotion and those nonverbal cues, which not everyone can pick up on. Right. And it can be assumed that, oh, you're not paying attention or, oh, you're stupid. or um, But really, they just need someone that understands them to be able to help guide that conversation and to mm-hmm. be like, just let them show you. Let them do it. Yes. And it, It'll it'll blow your mind. I've seen that happen a few times, which is really awesome it to is. have that support, um, especially in the workforce development sector. Yeah. And then I think also just you know me being I use a wheelchair as well, and I have a progressive muscular disease. And the wheelchair seats in the theater have you cracked me up. They're huh. always the worst. Oh my! <laughs> Absolute. Like, you wouldn't let your grandma sit here. So I know. Why would you make somebody? Why would you design a seat that she would have to sit in? Right. Yeah. 
I will say here in Atlanta, the Woodruff Performing Arts Theater was completely redone and it's absolutely gorgeous. And the wheelchair seats and the wheelchair companion seat area is smack dab in the middle. And it, it well, actually there's two places. So one that's like smack dab in the middle, just after the first, just right after the first section. And then there's one all the way up on the, it's a small theater. So there's one up at the top of the theater if you yeah. want to view it from that angle. Yeah. So that's the other important point, right? Is, is opportunity for it not all to be the same, right? Because I think right. for some people being in the first row, like I hate movie theaters that I have <laughs> to be in the first row. Right. Um, because I'm low and it's horrible for my neck. And it's also sensory. Even for me, it's too much. And I kind of thrive in this world of visual, you know, mm-hmm. since it's, you know, lots of stuff going on. And uh, I really do appreciate a theater that has some options for me to pick where I want to, where I want to put my wheelchair. I had a really bad experience one time. I forgot where I was, but they told me that I had to get out of my wheelchair because my wheelchair being in the, like me sitting in my wheelchair in the aisle was a safety hazard. Yeah. That happened to me. I went to see a show on Broadway and at one of the <laughs> older theaters on Broadway. And I was like, I was like then oh, give me my money back because right. I can't, you know, <laughs> I can't and I won't. You're not separating me from my wheelchair. That's not going to happen. Exactly. You know? I mean, yeah. I, I'm not going to, I mean, sure, my, my sister was with me and like, sure, I, she can transfer me, but at the same time, no. Yeah, no, exactly. This, this is part of me and they, they don't know. They just don't separate from each other. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you either take all of me or none of me. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. It's always interesting, um, and I think you, you've mentioned it a few times about having to really prove to the non-disabled community that you are capable of doing things, but also you don't have to be able to do your job with all the physical aspects of it. You have your you have your brain and the right. experience that you have. And what would you say to employers or just peers or any anyone else that would challenge you and just say, well, he uses a wheelchair. Well, maybe I would start with, will you shut up, man? Um, <laughs> that's, good, that's good. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, no, I, I think the important part is, is, is that we, we look at people as individuals. And what, you know, if you're an employer, what you're looking for is what can this person bring mm. to your business? And you have to look at the individual. If you're just going to be economically focused, then what can you bring? And there is, this is also, we're in the middle of National Disability Employment Month, mm-hmm. Employment Awareness Month, right at the beginning of that. And there's a lot of information out there that proves that hiring people with disabilities leads to greater retention, greater performance. And they make more money for you because they're there <laughs> and they're dedicated in a way that the general population is not. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of studies that, that, that show that. There are a lot of examples. Just search YouTube or Google that shit. Um, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said the word. Um, Google that stuff. Um, you know, it's out there. 
And so I would I would challenge any employer directly about that that question. I feel like I can do that because I sit here in a position of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. I have basically two great jobs that I'm able to to handle. And so I recognize that there are people out there that are fearful of disclosure yeah. and fearful mm-hmm. of those interactions. And that's real. That's mm-hmm. absolutely real. And we do need advocates. We do need people that are helping to pull folks up. So that's, I feel like that's my responsibility, both as a person that acquired my disability and as a person that has a position of privilege that I need to do anything I can to to reach and bring employers on board and to bring folks up that are like me. Yeah, the fearful of disclosure is is really unfortunate and it's really sad to hear that some people aren't sca- are scared of yeah. being themselves. Yeah. And I know a teammate of mine who worked at a previous employer, he never disclosed his disability and the reason for that is because he knew if he did, and that would mean that his, and he was trying to ask for a different insurance, that if he tried to change the insurance, it would change it for the entire company and insurance rates would go up. And he would be known of, well, this is the person that caused. This is the one. This is the one, right? And to live with that, it's kind of twofold, right? It's like, well, too bad, like the world isn't perfectly all non-disabled people, right? But at the same time, it's also like you don't want to be that burden and that person that causes people that, you know, maybe a few extra dollars a month actually makes or breaks whether or not they can make rent on time. You know, there's just like a whole lot of other factors that you have to be sensitive to. Yeah, that burden is real and it's... uh... Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's reasonable for people to feel that way, but I also feel like we need to help people to ask for what they need and right. uh, even demand what they need. And mm-hmm. it's okay. Uh, we're, you know, in many areas in our society right now, in the United States anyway, we're becoming more aware of people of individuals as individuals with the different needs and we're finding ways to include them, create equity for them as opposed to equality, which is a different thing, and bring them on board. And so we we deserve that just as much as anyone else. And when we get to places, you know, you and I, at the, before we got online, we're talking about intersectionality. Mm-hmm. When you start bringing in race, gender, sexual identity, gender identity, when you start bringing any of that also on top of disability, it's just, it's so many strikes against a person mm-hmm. that it, it can feel and can be overwhelming. And, you know, we need to address all of those, get those things better. It's, it's, the fight's not over, that's for sure. Right. It's always that saying that nothing without us, or nothing about us without us. Absolutely. And yeah. um, you briefly mentioned the equity versus equality. I want to know what your take is on that. Well, I think that the you know there's 
there's a kind of famous uh, graphic out there of like, you know, equality is everybody's given a bicycle, right? Mm-hmm. But there are people of different sizes and people like me, I actually need a hand cycle, not a bicycle with pedals for the feet, right? Mm-hmm. So equity is, is that I have a hand cycle. You know, the quality mm-hmm. is, is that everybody's given a bicycle. And so that's the way I look at it is, is, is finding the thing that people need to do whatever the task is. And in this case, it's riding around on wheels, uh, so, you know. <laughs> um, so I think that that's, that's my core way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that equity is, is more, much, much more important. Mm-hmm. I like that, the hand cycle. That's a great imagery of thinking about equity versus equality. It's like you, sure, you got a seat at the table, but can you actually voice your opinion and can you actually share your story? Right. If, if the table is too high or the microphone is too far away from you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. If you can't see up to the top of the table. Exactly, right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> the yeah. table's built for Jack and the Giant Beanstalk, but... We're in, yeah. we're sitting in a wheelchair. Doesn't I'm sure as a wheelchair like user, you know, like you roll into a bar and all the the bar tables are at stool height, right? Yes. And it's like, <laughs> well, huh? That's weird. <laughs> How am I going to do this? <laughs> exactly. Well, I actually, what I've done on a number of occasions, I will pull out that bar chair, the bar stool, and you know, I'll have them sanitize it, and I will actually eat off of it. Right, yeah, because that's at the right level. Because that is at the right level. And (laughs) what's great in doing that, it makes a statement, not only, but it also, the bartenders and the owners and the waitresses go, huh, wow, you know, I didn't think about that. You know, I didn't think about the inequities there, but also at the same time, like, well, she's really creative. Right. Because it's like, yeah, I mean, you're given a situation, you physically can't reach up to the top of the bar. It looks it's like I can't raise my arms that high to eat yep. and bring it to my <laughs> bring yeah. it to my mouth. So you gotta make do with what you have. I think and that's pardon that, you know, A, you're brilliant with that. And then B, that brings us back to the point of like, why do we hire people with disabilities? <laughs> Because we are the most creative problem solver you will ever freaking run into. <laughs> we can, whatever the situation is, oh, I've got to get into this building and there's no freaking way. I'll figure out a way. I'll figure right? it out. <laughs> yeah. And we will, we will overcome whatever the thing is that you put in front of us. So those are the people you want to hire. We're creative mm-hmm. problem solvers, especially now in the way that you know things are going with economy and everything else, we need creative problem solvers in all aspects of our lives. Oh, totally. I always am interested, or people ask me all the time, how has COVID affected your life? And like the whole pandemic and just the world shutting down. And um, I, I want to hear what what your how, what your take is on that and how it's affected you. I think, you know, First off, in the in the in the short term, anyway, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is shut down, so mm-hmm. I don't have employment and I don't have income. So that's changed a lot about my life. Luckily, with Kinetic Light, we're still trying to work, and we're finding ways to do things. You know, we've done some dance in place videos for various organizations like the Rubin Foundation and the Lincoln Center. 
where the dancers are in their homes and I've kind of directed them about set up the lighting like this in your house so that it kind of looks cool, you know. Oh, nice. And uh, we're working on, we have a, a five camera shoot of our piece Descent and I'm directing that movie with an editor and a sound editor to kind of create a, a different, more impactful experience of that that can be presented on a screen as opposed to on a stage. Mm. So I'm finding ways to to work, but it's also it's very isolating. You know, mm. I'm at home. I, there's the social contact thing is really uh, it's it's not there. Yeah, I can I can function a little bit like that. But I also, I'm finding that I'm a more socially needy person than I thought I was. Um, <laughs> I thought it was like, oh, it's all me. And no, it's, you know, I need to be around people. I love people and I enjoy their company and their creativity and the energy. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the um, as wonderful, maybe even saying that sarcastically, as Zoom calls are, um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not the same. And uh, I'm calling when we can all get back together again, the hugging, (laughs) so we can all get together. (laughs) The hugging, the hugging, so we can all hug hug again, right? um, Yeah. Um, Oh, Oh, interesting. (laughs) Getting. Yeah, I think with COVID, it's really impacted people in all different ways and some losing job, no income yeah. and others still having a job, still having income, but realizing, you know, what about their caretakers and how is yeah. that going to impact them coming into my house and all right. these services that people go and, you know, buying yeah. prescriptions, certain pharmacies have shut down. How do you right. get your prescriptions? So, um, yeah. I was in hospital recovering from a surgery when COVID broke out Okay. And, you know, it was, it was interesting because, you know, obviously everything changed there about their procedures and how they were handling things. And then I came out into a very different world than I went into before the surgery. And that mm. felt a little, little strange. And all of that follow-up care, sort of continuing issues that have happened as a result of that, it's, it's kind of, it's changed how you get healthcare. Mm-hmm. Right. What can happen? A lot of things they're wanting to do on video calls where they actually need to be physically examining you. And so you kind of have to get through a barrier to get that to happen. And yeah. then getting just having to go to the ER, as I did last week. Mm-hmm. That's a scary experience because, you know, you're going into an environment where you're probably exposing yourself. Sure. Right. And yeah, for scary. those of us that have what they call comorbidities other symptoms, other things that are possibly challenging for us, that that can be pretty scary. You know, it's and it, it's part of the choice, right? You know, definitely in my thought process before going in last week was, oh, I'm really sick. This is very scary. I need help. Hmm. Do I want to expose myself to COVID? Is it that bad? Mm-hmm. Question mark. You know, and I imagine that I'm not the only person that has had to have had to make that choice. And then of course, I'm also unemployed yeah. and you know, how am I going to pay for this? Right. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause I'm sure without employment, you don't have healthcare anymore. Right. Health insurance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's impacted. That's wow. 
It really, it really does. It's so drastic from person to person. Yeah. It's, it's been not such a great year for a lot of people. Yeah. Especially, I think, for the disability community who is generally more vulnerable to different infections based on, you know, whatever their condition may be. Right. And then also just accessing healthcare. I think telemedicine has really transformed. I mean, I've been using telemedicine far before COVID happened. It's been really helpful for me because I'm like, should I go all the way uptown to go to my dermatologist or, and just to have like a five minute checkup or can I just stay in the comfort of my own home and, you know, get really up close and personal on the camera yeah. With good lighting and save me an hour and a half trip. Right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah, I think telemedicine has to just, it took a pandemic for it to really kick in, which I'm yeah. thankful that sometimes. There are and I think, yeah, you're right. There are a lot things. of benefits to it. And then <laughs> there are times when it's like, oh, that's just not enough. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't get me wrong. Like, you can't, like, I, I have my clinic, my muscular dystrophy clinic coming up next week. And that's a one once a year thing. And they're like, do you want to do telemedicine for it? And I'm like, you can't take measurements of my progression over Zoom. Like, I'm sorry, you just can't. <laughs> like, right. so thankfully, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> I will I will assume the risk, you know, take the precautions. Yeah. And make sure that I keep myself safe going up there. Cause yeah, not everything can be done over Zoom. And I very oh. much I miss all the person personal just vibe in the office and just everywhere. Yeah. Stuff definitely changed. Yeah. So that's that's how COVID has changed a lot of people. Yeah. We certainly have covered a whole bunch of topics. Wow, just it's really amazing. Is there anything that you want to talk about specifically about your spinal cord injury to wrap up like the last 10 minutes? Maybe um, how some of the things that you use in your day-to-day to help share with others who maybe are newly injured or just maybe maybe people don't know about types of equipment that you use. Uh, sure, yeah, we can get into that a little bit. I use a wheelchair. I have a uh, both a manual chair and a power chair. And Ashland, Oregon, I live in southern Oregon, and we're at the confluence of two mountain ranges, the Cascade and the Siskiyou in a valley. So it is hilly AF here, right? (laughs) There's a lot of hills. And I can get myself around a little bit, but not completely without the power chair. And so if I'm having to uh, go any amount of distance in town, I know that I'm going to have to climb a hill that I would be unable to do in my power chair or in my manual chair. So I use the power chair instead. I feel really lucky that I'm able to, I'm in a position where I was able to do that. My you know, my manual chair is 17 years old now, but it's still going great. I've had to replace the axle once. That's, you know, that's about it. Is that good? I, I don't know with manual chairs. I don't know either. I, you know, okay. it, it seems kind of amazing to me. Like, yeah, you could, sure. you know, anything can last that long. Exactly. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool that that's lasted that long. Um, yeah, I kind of figured it would be one of those things that you change out every five years, but I'm kind of like, this thing's great. It just keeps on going. And I've traveled and nice. I've gone to Prague with it, you know, and rolled over oh, wow. the cobblestones and it's just, it keeps on Ooh. ticking. So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, then in Europe, I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Europe, Europe is definitely a challenge. Um, yeah, I called almost every building there accessible. Right, their idea of accessibility is up two steps or down two steps. <laughs> um, yeah. 
yeah, especially in crazy. Germany. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my, that's great. <laughs> I have a hand cycle, which is great. I haven't been able to use it in a while. I've had some complications this last uh, two years, and I haven't been able to use it. But uh, it was a great thing, and I'm looking forward to being able to get back to it and so I kind of get back to a little bit healthier state. How does the hand cycle help you? Well, know. you know, it, it builds strength, of course. It builds endurance, lung, and heart function, right? Mm. And because you're just I out there. One. Yeah, it's really kind of amazing. The other thing is just, for me anyway, because I was a cyclist and I was, I was on a, 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 not a pro team, but an amateur team, you know, local, local team. And so I was, mm -hmm. you know, kind of really into it, loved both mountain biking and road biking. And so I really like there's something that is just amazing about the feeling of going fast under your own power, right? I've generated this power with my hands to, to get going the speed that I'm going and, and just kind of feeling that wind and feeling that energy. And it's also a community. There are other, no matter where you are, even here in Southern Oregon, I've found a couple of other hand cyclists, uh, folks with spinal cord injuries and you know, it's great when we can get together and it's great when we can get together and race, right? You know, we show up at a 10K and we're like, okay, you guys are all running, but we're going to race our hand cycles and we're going to beat all y'all to the finish line. <laughs> um, That's great. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, of course, there are the things that were a total surprise to me, like you have to use a catheter, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, uh, I guess, lucky or specific in that I'm able to do straight cathing, but hey, surprise, you know, when you have a spinal cord injury, the first thing that goes away is bowel and bladder function. And I didn't know mm -hmm. that before. And, you know, it was a it was a big adjustment. And as they told me at the time, you know, in a few years, you won't even think about it. It's just the way it's done. And that's right. absolutely true. And so I would say that to folks that have newly acquired a spinal cord injury or for whatever reason have neurogenic bladder, you know, mm -hmm. You you will get to a place where this becomes commonplace. You will get to a place where it's not something that makes you feel awkward or weird. And you will know how to function in a public restroom and in a place, you know, you'll figure all of those things out and you will ultimately end up feeling comfortable about it and feel safe about it. But it does take time and it takes experience before you get there. It's not instantaneous. Yeah, what are some of the things that you like in the bathroom stall to help you with that? Maybe it's, you know, a trash can placed a certain distance or the certain size, or maybe have like a, a fold out table um, coming down from the wall. Not like a big table, just like a tiny little like thing. To, yeah, boy, to place a little shelf on. or something to like, you know, because I have to deal with lube, hand sanitizer, catheter, you know, mm -hmm. extension tube, right? Yeah, yeah, so I think like the stalls, first of all, it's just enough room to get your mm -hmm. wheelchair in with, yeah, that's the first your, with your backpack on it because you're in the airport mm -hmm. and you have your backpack on the back of your wheelchair and it can't yeah. be just big enough for the wheelchair. It's got to be big enough for the wheelchair and the backpack, which is one of the things I talk to architects about. It's like the law says 54 inches of clear space. Just make it 60. Just right. give us six more inches, right? You know. That kind of stuff. Um, yeah, a little fold-out table or a little shelf is great. A trash can in every stall would be absolutely perfect. Wash basins at the correct height. Mm -hmm. And 
wash basins that are engineered so that all of the water doesn't end up on the countertop because I really <laughs> don't need to be putting my arms and hands on your filthy water that you left behind. Um, yeah. You know, all know of that kind of mean. stuff would be mm-hmm. great. Yeah, and I would really, you know, because after you after you use a catheter, you have to throw it away. So that trash can in the stall would be great so I don't have to carry a catheter out while I'm wheeling out to throw away, you know. It's, sure. I've gotten past the place where I'm embarrassed by it, but it is also one of those things where people look at you like, WTF is that, you know, because they have no like, experience what with did it. you just do in the bathroom? Like, <laughs> yeah, you perform freak. surgery or something? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hang on. No, decline. Yeah. So it's, yeah, the world is not quite, quite up to speed on that. Bathrooms in general are challenging. And I've definitely been in situations where the bathroom's just not accessible. You know, mm-hmm. you, you either can't get in or the stall's too small and or they don't have an accessible stall at all. And you have yeah. to figure out how you're gonna do it. And there are ways, you know, but it, it it's uh those people just get a big red mark for me and I don't go back to that business, you know. Oh definitely. I let not. them know why, you know. Yep. Hundred yeah. percent. Well, thank you so much for sharing the equipment that you use in your daily life, but then also talking so much about intersectionality and lighting and arts and entertainment. And we talked about Disability Employment Awareness Month and that's the month of October. Just promoting inclusion and equity. I'll say equity, not necessarily equality, but equity in everything that you do and that universally designed environment and access for everyone is just so critical. So thank you so much, Michael, for spending time with me and just sharing your story and your expertise. It's been really wonderful. I've certainly learned a lot. Well, thanks for your time, Cardin. It's great to talk to you. Take care. Okay, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you, friends, for listening. Please rate and follow this podcast or text Carden at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. Tune in next week for another disability topic.